Okay, I think we're ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for all the gifts you give us, especially the gift of community that is an image of your Trinitarian life and an invitation to know each other as you know us and through our community with each other to love you more. And yet, Lord, within this veil of tears, all forms of human community struggle with the remainders of sin and the difficulties that we face in living always at every moment in your peace. Without your Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. So send us the gifts we need, both for our understanding and knowledge and counsel, but also for our life in community and our desire to be among your chosen people with a love for all who have not, even those who have not yet joined us in the family of the church. Grant us your Holy Spirit for our time together today and help us understand what we need to grow closer to you and to be of greater, greater service to each other. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, I pray about community because I've been thinking lately about how difficult it is to live in community and pondering, of course, why it's so difficult for us to live in community because we're all called, you know, we're, we're called to religious life. And that means that the Holy Spirit has inspired in us a desire to live in community for the greater honor and glory of God. But having been a Holy Cross priest for a few years and, you know, we have all kinds of communities we're a part of, but um, whether it's the small community of marriage or the larger community of religious life, it's just so very difficult to, to you know, live the ideal that brought us into community. You know, and, it's, and, and I think it's a big shock often for younger priests and for any religious, you know, they're inspired and drawn to the religious life by an ideal of serving God and living among sisters and brothers who are pursuing the same thing. And then like any marriage, they realize they've married a fallible, human, sinful human being. And, it's, and so the reality can sometimes be quite a shock to the, uh, to the ideal. And, and then it can cause a crisis in, in many. And ultimately, of course, we make our peace with it. But we also realize, don't we, that settling for the status quo in kind of a kind of a tenuous equilibrium is not what God desires, not what we desire, and yet so often we feel helpless in moving beyond anything like that. And I know myself, I'm an introvert by nature, though it would be hard to believe when you see me talking on so long, but you know, an introvert is one who likes, who finds their restorative energy from being alone, which I do, which is why I'm so grateful to Sister Pauline and to the sisters here for giving me the room every once in a while, um, because I love solitude. And, and, and you know, and I love to serve as well. I love, I mean, there's nothing that I enjoy more honestly in all of my ministry than coming here twice a month to be with you because um, you know I'm called to teaching but I'm an introvert by nature and so it's just fine by me if nobody bothers me I don't want anything to do with community and yet I know it's also not good for me to isolate you know so these gifts these weeds and wheat grow together is I guess what I'm trying to say our greatest gifts sometimes can become our greatest liabilities you know I'm called to teaching but when I babble on it's no good for anybody uh, I'm called to solitude but when I isolate it's not good for me or anybody either so there's always that delicate balance and I've spent a lot of time since we were together last time um, because uh, wondering why that is, why, why the ideal is so burdened by obstacles for it coming about. And I said briefly just before we started today that uh, I always think of what I should have said here uh, when I'm in the park while <laughs> leaving. And um, uh, I thought of that last week a little time, a little bit, because I inundated you as always with lots of material about this, about this great mystery that's at the heart of the gospel. Um, that that in the incarnation of our Lord, 
the fullness of the kingdom has arrived in the world and everything that we did last year together on the beauty of the liturgy and the um, and the mysticism of St. Paul and moving towards this early church vision of the human person as St. Irenaeus would say the glory of God is the human person fully alive or as the other fathers said even more profoundly the purpose that God the reason God became man so was so that men and women could become God and where I'm always moving in all of our classes together is to get uh, to share with you um, the vision of the early church that has totally renewed my life completely this early church view which was the genesis again of Vatican II which has not yet been realized because the primordial vision of the human person fully alive in God or more profoundly the human person becoming deified and divinized by God in the language I was using just a minute ago living our vocations not only perfectly but perfectly joyfully I was saying to Sister Polly and every time I see her my, my, my countenance lights up because she has a gift of making people feel welcome um, and that's a great gift and, and we want to feel it, we want to live in community where the community members themselves somehow are instruments of bringing us all fuller alive that I'm more myself in your company than when I am alone that's the ideal it's not the reality very often and that's meant to be the ideal in the church that the people of God is it, we're really meant almost to be electric filaments on fire you know uh, you know the story of the desert father who who had this vision as well you know he was a monk doing lots of fasting and and praying he went to his spiritual father and said father you know I, I feel very close to God what more could it what more could be in store for me because he recognized that this spiritual father was even holier than he was even though he had practiced the disciplines for years and years and years and the and his spiritual father stood up and put his two hands and he said well you could become all fire and his hands began to glow you know with with the fire of the holy spirit i think i heard father benedict rochelle one time say that he when he was in the community of when he was early in the community of the Franciscans he used to occasionally go down the hallway in the middle of the night and see Father Solanus Casey in the in the sanctuary praying and literally glowing in the dark you know according to Father Grishel and whether or not that is true and whether or not the story of the monk is true in exactly the same way the certainly the early church vision of the meaning of the incarnation and the mystery of the liturgy which is the incarnation in its sacramental extension and form and really fulfillment and perfection the early church fathers looked at the mass the eucharist the the assembly around the lamb who is slain that great mysterium fidei they looked at that as the fulfillment and the perfection of the incarnation this is all stuff that i told you last time when we were together again and I'll come back to it again because we're recycling here but in the in the celebration of the Eucharist the kingdom is present in its fullness in its fullness so that the incarnation was a means to the fullness of the Eucharistic mystery which is the kingdom of God come in its fullness and yet it is not still not fully clear to us that the kingdom is there in its fullness so the kingdom has come but it hasn't been consummated in a way that is so clear to us that when we enter into the liturgy we glow with the glory that we in our own minds think is reserved for us once we get to heaven and what I was straining to say last time, overstraining because it didn't come out right, is that the glory that will be ours visibly in the kingdom that is to come 
the, let me take a step back. The kingdom that is to come is no different kingdom than the kingdom that is present in its fullness, first in the very incarnational person of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, but then extended and amplified and perfected, but also more hidden in a way and more mysterious in the church and in the mystery of the liturgy of the church. The same kingdom present in Jesus. The kingdom and Jesus really are the same thing. It's the Trinitarian life in incarnate form. And that form now is given to us and we are given a participation in the autobasilia, the kingdom in person of Jesus. We are given a participation in the person of Jesus in this mystery known as the church and the Eucharist. So it's the ex that kingdom that we experience in the church and the mass is the same kingdom, i.e. Trinitarian life, that was present in its fullness but in a hidden form in the person of Jesus, the Son of Mary, the incarnate Word of God. And that same kingdom will be also present in its fullness, but manifest in a more glorious way, as it were, in the kingdom that is still coming, which we talk about as the second coming of Christ. So last time I was trying to, I was straining to say that all of the kingdom is the same, but it has these different forms of itself. And the form that we're in now is the form of the church and the Eucharist. But we are meant to experience those. And we are meant to be able to taste those, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. We are meant to be able to experience the fullness of the kingdom to come in the present through our participation in the Eucharistic Church, the Ecclesia de Eucharistia. The Eucharist creates the church. Other, also something that we talked about last year, if you recall. Okay, so, so there's, a, there's a dynamism about the church and the Eucharist. There's a mystery about it, but it's a dynamic mystery. It's an electric mystery. It's a divinizing mystery. It's a deifying mystery. It's a sanctifying mystery, such that the real saints, like a Mother Teresa or the founder of your community, everybody knows there's something different about a saint. You know, they often say, that person glows. There's something about, it's that something about the saint that comes from this participation in the kingdom. Sometimes they're aware that they're doing it. Sometimes they're not aware that they're doing it. Like John of the Cross and Teresa were aware of what was happening to them. They were aware that God was deifying them and that, and that they were meant to be an image of that for the people of God. But everybody was called to what they knew themselves to be experiencing. Um, anyway, now I'm starting to babble, but you see what I'm doing, okay? So, so I was straining to figure out last time how can I say it a little more clearly that will, will be helpful, and, and maybe what I just said was helpful even though it is kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. Now, so the question, when I walked out last time, I said, what was I really trying to tell them, and why did it come, up, come across so clearly? And what I was really trying to say last time was, and this is what we'll talk about this time, is that even though the fullness of the kingdom to come is present among us right now, and, and, but, a, but especially and more quintessentially present, more actively present in a way, whenever we celebrate the Eucharist. The Eucharist, as we know, is the heart and soul of our church. The church is, the church is not an institution that holds the Eucharist. The church is, is a, a Eucharistic uh, event that also has institutions to make sure that it gets celebrated regularly and properly. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The institution doesn't come first. The, 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 uh, the, the gathering for this mystery is what brought us all here in the religious life to, for the, for, to begin with. That's the heart and center of our lives if we're truly, truly living our Christian faith. Um, so the church doesn't come first. The Eucharist comes first, creates the church, and the church holds the Eucharist as an inviolable treasure. But it's there that we are most fully alive. 
It's there that we are divinized. It's there that God does for us what we are not able to do for ourselves. It's there that all the things that kill us outside of Eucharist, in community and otherwise, it's there that they are healed. It's there alone that we're able to put aside our, our rage and resentment and be open to the healing of God. It's as if the cloud of the Shekinah, the glory of God, descends upon the assembly, those who have come to be one with the Lord in the Eucharist. And it's, it's under that canopy. That's why so many altars have a canopy as a, as a reminder of the cloud that enveloped Moses on the mountain. It envelops us. The Trinitarian embrace at the liturgy is the glory of God, the kabod of God, the weight of glory, the heaviness of the cloud of God's sanctity descending upon the face of the earth and gathering into itself all those created for communion with him and imbuing us with his own divine life. Now only to the extent that we are open to absorbing this glory will we be sanctified and glorified. St. Paul talks about growing from one degree of glory to another. St. Paul actually believed that those who were being deified by Christ through participation in him in the Eucharist would visibly manifest the effects of that. And the saints do. The saints do. But so, so when I walked out last time, I asked myself, uh, if that's all true, which it is, then how come we have such a hard time seeing it? How come we have such a hard time feeling it? How come if the kingdom is come in its fullness, even though that fullness is not yet manifested, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, how come we are still impeded? How come we have to see it through faith and not knowledge? You know, that's how we have framed this, this difficulty over the years. We've said, well, we, we're on earth, so we, we walk by faith, not by sight. And St. Paul himself says, you know, in the kingdom beyond, I will know even as I am known, I will see face to face. And it seems as if we are stuck with faith in this world and will have true knowledge in the next world. But that is to a certain extent, and to a large extent actually, an artificial distinction. Because faith itself is a kind of knowing. It's, in fact, it's a deeper kind of knowing. You know, all the saints of our church have always said, in order to understand properly, you must first believe. Or another way of putting it, only those who love something can really be open and understand at the deepest levels what it is they're studying. If I come to any object or in any relationship, not with an attitude of faith or openness or trust, I'm using all these words simultaneously here right now, if I come to a person or an object, even my scientific studies, with a certain skepticism, a built-in critical faculty, I will still be able to learn certain things about that, but I actually will have unconsciously inhibited my ability to take in what the other object is trying to show me if I am not favorably disposed to it in the beginning. Until I give people the benefit of the doubt, I really cannot even hear them accurately. You see what I'm saying? And so, even though we separate faith and knowledge, love and knowledge, there is a certain sense in which love enables me to know more. Faith enables me to know more. Faith actually enables me to see rightly about a person. If I'm meeting you in community and there's something about you I don't like right off the bat, then I have already unconsciously placed a barrier between you and me. And I'm not going to be receptive to any, probably to any good qualities that you may have because I have already done it to myself. Now I can use all kinds of reasons and justifications for saying that, you know, I should be guarded in the beginning and you shouldn't open up just to anybody and all of those are true at one level. 
But the more I open up to a person and just put my own judgment on hold for a minute and try to listen carefully, in other words, give them the benefit of the doubt, that's an act of faith. I'm making an act of faith that they have something to show me that I may not have seen as smart as I may be. You see what I'm saying? And so, and so, when it comes to our topic, I still was asking myself last time, how come I'm having such a hard time communicating to my friends that we should be able to experience and know and really even feel the deifying power of the Trinity in the Church, in the Eucharist, and in our community, but we don't. And the answer came to me very clearly, actually in concert with some of you who stayed around speaking to me at the end of last session. I think, was there a sister visiting last time who was here for the first time? I, mean, I know it's been two, I think she may have been from California. Yes, and, and she came up, I think, or a couple of you came up and we talked a little bit about it. And, and, um, and, I, and I realize how much I've hesitated to put the dilemma in these terms because for two reasons uh, because I don't want to be histrionic and over dramatic and 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 overstate the case for one thing which I'm inclined to do can you can you can, can you figure that go figure that huh um, <laughs> my people who know me and love me always tell me to try to be a little less dramatic you know and again there's an example of passion can become its opposite very quickly <laughs> you know more dramatic than I need to every time I go to confession I always confess lying by exaggeration <laughs> because it's true I, I try to paint things in, in because I kind of see them that way myself and I expect everybody else to do that too and that's not always fair that's one reason the other reason is I realize that um, uh, it's, it's the very success of the powers that I want to talk about that incline me not to talk about them in the terms that they deserve to be talked about and that, and that is the powers of evil because the simplest way to say what I was trying to say last time and it is actually on your sheets last time and again today and I didn't because I don't often refer to the sheets you may not have seen it but the short answer and ultimately the truest answer is that the reason we are not able to experience the fullness of the kingdom in the true way that it is actually present among us is because through God's providential will even though the powers of evil have been definitively defeated by the paschal mystery of Jesus for reasons known only to God but certainly understood by Jesus as our Savior and as an eschatological Savior the powers of evil Satan and his evil spirits still have a certain grip upon the world physically in terms of the cosmic movement of the planets and stars and emotionally with people and primarily and spiritually with people I was saying on Sunday at Mass speaking about I can't remember the gospel from last week but the point was that just as we have been given a guardian angel to protect the gift of faith which yeah, I was talking about the gift of faith and what a great gift it is and how fragile it is that we've been given from all eternity really if you read the saints a guardian angel or more than one guardian angel if we have a, all of us have a kind of specific mission for God that needs to be discovered through deep discernment and contemplative prayer of which I'm teaching a course this fall at the parish which I'm really excited about but we've all been given guardian angels to protect our faith and to protect the unique mission that God has for each of us and to see that through to completion and to just be able to discern that properly and deeply and order our life around that personal vocation even within a state of life of religious life or priesthood each of us is a different person and within the general state of life each of us also has a uniquely personal vocation which must be discovered if I am to be happy in the religious life to be happy in any life as a Christian I must know how to go about discerning that I'll be teaching about that in the fall and if you like we could do a little review of that here at some point um, so um, 
That gift of faith is guarded for us, we believe, Catholic dogma, by a guardian angel. Their faces behold the, the, the face of the Father and they intercede for us continually. They're continually trying to move us. And I could tell you angel stories. I'm sure you could tell me some too. But I could tell you literal angel stories, both of good angels and evil angels that I have encountered and been privy to, again, without being too dramatic here. Um, but it's also Catholic dogma, or certainly Catholic belief, that in addition to the good angels who have been given to us by the Heavenly Father to, to, to make sure that we remain in communion with Him and the Holy Spirit and the Father, we are also assigned C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Have any of you ever read that or you know about that? It's a wonderful little book where he describes in a fanciful kind of way but a very powerful way how the evil angel also, the one who mocks God, Lucifer, the light bearer, the, the main angel who fell and was cast down from heaven. I've got all these quotes on your page for today. Uh, I, could, I could have put it, my point is here, the, the, Satan and his evil angels also continually war against those who are every person who is in the world with the sole purpose of destroying faith in the Son of God and marring and destroying all the persons, every, which is every human person ever created, destroying the image and likeness of God. See, Satan takes the greatest joy, according to Catholic teaching, and certainly Catholic devotion, I don't know, it's certainly Catholic teaching that there is an evil angel, that he has minions, that they do assault the human person and try to undermine the church and try to wreak havoc in the world. Um, you know, that's easy enough for us to understand. But the reason, as I walked out last week, realizing I had not put it in those terms, was precisely because, even in talking with groups like you, who I'm not getting such a hard time in saying this stuff, because you know it and you believe it, but it is not generally evil angels and powers of evil, principalities and powers, what Paul talked about as thrones and dominations, these are all referring to very real things for St. Paul and very real things for the church and have always been very real for the saints of the church. But I realized walking out last week that, that I even hesitate putting it in those terms with you and I would certainly hesitate putting it in those terms with the general Catholic population. Why? Precisely, and I'll say this to you, hopefully I won't get too much blowback from you, but I'll tell you why. I mean, I know why. I feel that hesitation in myself, though I believe this 100% my own being because I've seen it face to face in many different forms. Uh, I hesitate saying that to the normal person because our culture and our church itself, through a whole, through several centuries of, 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 uh, of illegitimate biblical criticism, starting with a man named Rudolf Boltman and others, who have done to the scriptures what is known as, and you've probably even heard this phrase before, demythologizing the Bible. It has become pretty much standard Christian understanding, Catholic as well as non, though there are pockets of resistance in, this, in all those denominations. But it's become pretty much standard Catholic exegetical assumptions, now being actually quite critically assessed by people like Pope Benedict and others, that yes, things in the Bible like demons and angels don't refer to real entities, they refer to psychological or personal complexes that get pictured following Freud and Nietzsche and Marx as, as beings, but we know better that there are no such beings. Well, that, that, in, that approach to scripture based on certain psychological theories of interpretation, starting mostly with Freud, um, has become pretty commonly accepted within a lot of biblical criticism, including with people like Father Raymond Brown, etc., other people who are geniuses in their own right, but have also absorbed a certain approach to the more what they would call the more mythological elements of scripture 
and they've tried to retranslate those or demythologize those elements into terms we can understand, psychological terms for the most part. And I won't give you a whole detailed history here of how that happened, but I will tell you that with Pope Benedict and many, many others, uh, there's a resistance to that, saying no, uh, we may not believe in them. St. Ignatius faced the same thing when he talked about the good angel and the evil angel warring against the person in terms of discernment. But in the modern world, we may say, here, here's how the response to that takes place, primarily in the Catholic world. Well, you may not believe in those things for whatever reason. I mean, like the growth of science has disproved angels? Not really, but you may believe that. Boltmann certainly believed that. Others believe that. Many Catholic scripture scholars believe that. But it's indisputable that the people who wrote the scriptures believed in them. It's indisputable that Jesus believed in them. It's indisputable that the saints of the church have believed in them. So if you think, based on scientific analysis or the theories of Freud, that they don't exist, you're certainly nobody can prevent you from believing in that. But the church believes in them. <laughs> and, and, but you see, my hesitancy just revealed to me how much I am aware of how that demythologizing ethos has taken over the general population, i.e. how successful the evil one has been in convincing most of the world that he doesn't exist. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis said in his little book, The Screwtape Letters, and many other Catholics have said the same thing. St. Ignatius of Loyola said the same thing. There are two tactics of the devil that he uses again and again to, to move attention away from himself and elsewhere, and that is to get people either to believe that he doesn't exist, which is the normal standard fare for most Catholics, I'm afraid. Maybe not, but I, certainly most intellectual Catholics, because that's the world I come from. The real hotty-totty academic types, I mean, they really do think they're beyond all this, and it's as clear as a bell to me that they're totally in the grip of it. They just don't know it. <laughs> Benedict knows it. And he's able to explain it in a way that would take me longer than we have today, and it's not important. The other tactic of the devil is the one that, I'm, that I also have to guard against, um, maybe because I'm so aware of it. But the other one is that you start seeing the devil everywhere, you know? So it's not like, you know, I drop my glass of the water. It's not that the devil made me do it, you know? I mean, there are those people out there you know, who see Satan everywhere. You know, the person's uh, just a mile, you know, the sister's just impatient and somebody says, maybe she's possessed. We ought to get an exorcism. <laughs> see, so there's such a delicate balance between not seeing the devil everywhere, but not denying that the devil exists either. Okay? Now, what was clear to me walking out last week was in order to restore a sense of who Jesus actually was, what he was actually intending to do, and, and not make him just as we have made him coming from this world that we're in. We have turned Jesus into a moralistic guru. If you ask the normal Catholic, what is Catholicism? It's a set of rules and regulations that if I follow them and am good enough at my, the end of my life, I mean, there's different versions of this, and I'm caricaturing here to, for, to a certain extent. But the whole reason Vatican II was called was because Jesus himself and our church, Jesus had been turned into a moral teacher, and our church had been turned into the, a, 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 an institution whose sole purpose is to, is to guarantee the production of morally upright people with a little bit of sacramental grace thrown in for the mix to make you even better than you were before. And so, at the end of my life, I give an accounting of who I am, and when the books are opened, the judgment is made. If I've been a good Catholic or a good Christian, depending on what denomination I'm in, saved by faith or works, different versions of both of those, but in the end, the, the goal is to produce a good person worthy of the kingdom of God. That's a total misrepresentation of Jesus, the church, the sacraments, everything that 
the kingdom of God is about. But how to change that is what we've been trying to do together. I've been kind of pecking away at here in my own little way. Okay, And so, retrieving a sense of why did our Lord come? What did he think he was doing by coming? What did he think he was doing and would happen when he was willingly laying down his life like a seed falling to the ground and dying? And what did he expect to be in store for his followers? And what did he expect the kingdom of God to be like and come in its fullness if he himself knew himself to be the kingdom of God and the bringer of the kingdom of God? His first words when he came forth from the desert were, Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean by the kingdom of God is at hand? And I was trying to tell you last time that he meant the kingdom of God is at hand in my very person. The kingdom of God is at hand in what's going to happen through my death and resurrection. And the kingdom of God is at hand in what's going to happen to you as my followers subsequently. If they hated you, they will hate me. The kingdom of God is also at hand when I come again in glory with the angels from heaven through the signs that you will see. So the great mystery of the kingdom of God is that it is both present in Jesus, present in the church, and yet coming in the future in its fullness, but it's the same kingdom that's coming that is present in the future. And that's the difficulty of talking about what we've been talking about these last two weeks. But until that mystery is begin we begin to understand it and grasp it the meaning of our lord and the real the real truth about his life remains unknown to us because we've turned him into a moral teacher he was absolutely not that he was a redeemer but he was a redeemer who died and expected his followers also to be killed with the same kind of excruciating death and with more suffering than he went through and he said this is the this is the meaning of the kingdom of god being at hand and the reason for that is because he believed in the reality of evil and the mystery of evil and his mission was to destroy evil by submitting to evil <laughs> and that's what I meant to tell you last time <laughs> so I, okay so there so 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 I come back again and again to what on my sheets I call the grand narrative. There's a storyline running through the scriptures that um, until and unless I understand what that is, which is the same storyline taught and affirmed by Jesus in his words and in his actions, until I understand that the main story of God's plan for the redemption of the world I, it's impossible for me to understand the incarnation and the paschal mystery aright. Okay, and again, without again, I, I don't know why I can never look at the sheets because I feel like I, I lose your I lose connection with you. Let me try to say it in my own words, and, and it's all on your sheets. Okay, and we'll go there for a minute in a, in a minute. Um, when Adam, Adam and Eve were in perfect communion with God. They fell out of communion with God through the temptation of the evil one. So the evil one is right there at the very beginning, spoiling the story. So we fall prey to evil. And evil that, and e now evil, there's even a story, stage to the story before Adam and Eve were created. That's the angels being in communion with God and then disobeying. And so Jesus said, I've got all these references on your sheets. Jesus said, I saw the, let's, let's tell the story. I'll tell you the story from Jesus' perspective, okay? 
The Father created the cosmos. Yeah, I'll tell this is how I'll do it. I'll do it in the prophetic mode, as it were. The Father, I'm Jesus speaking now. Lord, send your Holy Spirit here so I say it right. Okay. The Father created the, the, in the beginning it was just me, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And I adore my Heavenly Father. My being as God the Son, boy, this is pretty presumptuous of me, but I'm going to try. Forgive me if I, Lord, forgive me if I. The, the, I I've, I've existed from all eternity with my Father and our Holy Spirit. We are a we. We never go, we never do. I don't know myself. There's no me. There's just us. But I recognize me in us. And I recognize me in us as one who has received. I am the only begotten. I have been begotten of the Father. I, I owe nothing to myself. I owe all to Him. My life is His life. My life, and yet I have a life different from His life. But my life is His life. I live to please Him. My life, another word for my life, is gratitude. Because everything I have comes to me from my Father, including my very own Godhead. Yes, I am God. But I am God the beholden one. I am God the obedient one. I am God the Son. I am not God the Father. My being is received. I will have a mother who will receive me. She, I love her so much because she receives like I receive. Another name for both of us are the receivers. We are on the receiving end of my Father's goodness. And all this happens through the power of His Holy Spirit. Blessed be He. <laughs> this is how Jesus is taught. And lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, but for me, he created all these beautiful angelic beings you see. And they exist simply to praise me. What more can I do to give thanks to my Father? All these are for me. How good of him. His love for me must be infinite. I don't even think I understand the full depths of his love for me. It's overwhelming to me. Everything he does makes me want to love him more. And then I was greatly saddened to see that the greatest among those that has made for me, he got jealous for some reason, also unknown to me. And he fell, and the Father sent him down into the creation that he had also made to glorify me. And now he inhabits one of my beautiful, one of the most beautiful planets that the Lord ever, my Father created for me, the blue planet, the earth. The water there makes me, reminds me of my Holy Spirit. The solidity of the ground and the mountains remind me of my Heavenly Father. Everything He does reminds me of, he, of Him. I see Him in everything I look at. I see Him in these angels and I see Him disfigured in their countenance. And it grieves me that they are angry and sad. But they inhabit the earth. And now I notice that he has created beings like unto me. And I will be one day like unto them. Adam and Eve. Man and woman. Their communion with each other is an image of our communion. Blessed be he. And yet I notice the evil one is after them. So now I'm going to stop my eternal parroting here of the Lord. And so Adam and Eve then came into this world as the image and likeness of the Father and the Son and immediately the evil one hating the Father and now being here. The realm of the evil angels is earth. He was given the earth as his domain until he would be locked up in the sea of fire. And only the Father knows this just as the, only the Father See, as one of the things it's important to understand here to get to understand the incarnation are right is that Jesus himself, though he's God, this is where our ideas, our stereotypical ideas do not help us. Even though he is God, there are certain things that he does not know as God, the time and the place that he will come again and that the Father will finish the job. He doesn't know that. He doesn't. He himself admits. See, there is a there is a what appears to us to be an imperfection in Christ. Ignorance of certain things is a perfection. But that's another. So, but anyway, you got that part of it. Okay. So, um, but for Jesus, he clearly sees that this realm is the realm that the Father gave to the evil angels. He doesn't know why. I presume. I think some of the mystics have said this is another. 
blessed ignorance of the sun that is only given to the the sun has no problem at all by the way that there are only there are certain things only no see there's no envy in the father in fact the reason satan fell was because of envy he was the most brilliant of all the stars he wanted to be like god he wanted to become god on his own power and it was that envy that led to his fall and the sun you see the perfect son of god is the opposite of lucifer because he does not desire to know anything that the Father has not given him to know. So there's no envy in the Son, but there was envy in Satan, in Lucifer, and he fell. Jesus is the light of the world, but Satan's name is the day star, the light bearer. But he's less than the Son because he fell from glory based on his desire to know more than it was given to him to know. And all of sin, in a way, is trying to get to know more than is given to us to know. In any event, I'm getting a little off the track here because I want to finish this. We've got 15 minutes. Um, so we know that we know from Scripture and from our Catholic faith that the that the that there are evil angels and their domain is this world for whatever reason. Only the Father knows, but it's a fact, and it's clear from the first pages of scripture as soon as the image and likeness of God appear on the scene Adam and Eve the evil one descends like a serpent and does what he does from the beginning he's a liar and he's a murderer and and Adam and Eve buy the lie and they lose their faith they lose their confidence in God they put their confidence in a lie and they lose their confidence in God. And as soon as that connection, it's like me looking at my sheets, as soon as that connection is lost, communion is lost. They, they go and hide themselves, they cover themselves. And, and so, um, so then it goes from bad to worse, and you have Cain murdering Abel. And, and we won't, in fact, I'm, we'll use this same sheet for next time because I want to show you what the structure of evil, our whole world now, is in the grip of evil. And what I'm, and it's so in the grip of evil that um, what comes to us as normal in our fall, until our minds, let me put it this way more positively, until our minds are renewed by faith in Christ and the truth of the church, everything that appears to us as normal is actually under the influence of the evil angels and a repetition of Cain and Abel, including all of our political arrangements and all of our natural systems of justice they are under they are they are they are actually shrouded but so subtly so that until i understand how it was meant to be and how it is for those in jesus what is actually in itself a mechanism of evil, not good as it presents itself, will seem good and normal to me. What I'm telling you is what passes in the world for normal human interaction and even normal human social justice is itself quite unjust and opposite of what God intends. And the reality of that can't even be known until I begin to glimpse through revelation that there is a way of being in this world which is a restoration of the way it was before the fall. A way of being that is given to me physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even cognitively through, primarily through the liturgy, primarily through the sacraments, supplemented by deep conversion, deep knowledge of my faith, study and understanding, and primarily once the sin is out of my life through serious... Re See, the problem, the, the reason it's so hard to repent and have conversion is because the presence of evil 
is so powerful that it blinds us to our own character defects because we think they're normal. Conversion, real conversion cannot happen until I begin to see everything about the way I'm living is in some way opposed to what God is calling me to. That's St. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Generally the conversion is much more gradual than that and little pieces of who Jesus is calling me to and who he is and what he's asking of me and what he's really requiring of me to be in communion with him. It's so far beyond what Satan has been able to convince the world of is normal that it sounds crazy to us. It sounds utterly unattainable. Like today's gospel. How many times should I forgive those who hate me? Seven? Like, that's extravagant? No, 77 times seven. If that's the way it is, Lord, nobody should ever marry. Unless, even if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's committed a moral sin. I'm paraphrasing. Huh? Doesn't everybody do it? Yes, everybody does do it. Why? Because everybody's under the grip of Satan. Why else? Do you see? Jesus had no illusions. That's why he knew, this is my point last year, he knew he was going to be killed. Because when the truth comes into a world inhabited by evil and normal itself is primarily the talons of evil, he looks so crazy and so threatening and so other that they hate him. He's a, he's a threat to the political order, to the spiritual order of Judaism, to the political order of Rome, and to the moral order of everybody who has defined goodness as an eye for an eye. So they all hate him. And he knew they would hate him. And he knew they would kill him. And he knew this is the way by my offering no resistance and by your offering no resistance. And in fact, they're going to do worse to you than they did to me. It's by offering, not only offering no resistance, but actually thanking them that they're going to cut your throat and actually joyously praying for them when they cut your throat. Don't we believe that Jesus looked down at the people nailing his hands with pure love? Don't we believe that? Don't we believe at some level that he really means for us to do the same? But in the next breath, don't we really say under our breath, oh, come on. Please, Lord. You can't expect, I mean, I'm just human. And the answer to that is, no, you're not. No, you're not. You shall be as gods, but not on your own power. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in me, you can do not only what I did, but even greater things than I did. That's the, that's the beginnings of the gospel. And the reason we have a hard time staying in this space that we're all in at this very minute is precisely because the heaviness of the evil spirits can take out of our thoughts you see it happens to me every week I talk here he can take out of our thoughts in an instant the, 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 the holy thoughts and the, the movements of our heart that put us in perfect communion with God is there anyone among us who doesn't know that when I am really in sync with God I can love those people in my community who absolutely drive me nuts 
every once in a while don't we have a day when the person I hate the most in community I just look at them and all of a sudden I love them you know it might be a brief all of a sudden I say you know that's just them being them and it doesn't bother me it doesn't touch me why because for that one brief moment the Holy Spirit has somehow given me the grace to be free of my own temptation to go right to my position of getting revenge and coming back at somebody. And so you see, my dear sisters, this battle in us between the ideal for communion with God that called us to this life in the first place, that fragile but indestructible gift within us if it's nurtured, is continually in a way that very few people, if they don't believe this, and I don't think this is over Krill or my, my over histrionics, at every moment of every day, the evil angels assigned to us, and maybe many others beside, are always whispering in our ear, oh, come on, you can do it later. If you've not read C.S. Lewis's little book called The Screwtape Letters, it's the letters of Lucifer to his minions out trying to destroy the faith in, in, in their subjects. And he says, never get a nun to try to give up their faith. They're not going to give up their faith. Never say to her, there is no God. She'll laugh at you. Just say to her, have that second piece of cake. It won't bother you. Because if she does that, she might then say to herself, eh, "Why, you know, I can make up that office in the morning. I'm tired. I don't have to do that." Little by little, and Saint John of the Cross used to say, "Satan and his evil angels—they know they're not going to get people like you and please God, me. They're not going to get you to abandon your. They're not going to get you for help." There is a hell, by the way. <laughs> I won't really go there because then you'd really be accused of every bad thing. But there is a hell. Lots of people probably go there. It doesn't matter. Praise, please God, we don't. But, but St. John of the Cross says he knows he's not going to get saints to go to hell. He knows that. He's got too many going already, John of the Cross says. He doesn't. He doesn't St. Ignatius of Loyola says the exact same thing. The evil angel sends consolations to the person who's not living according to the will of God, according to Ignatius. God sends consolations to the people who are searching for him diligently, and desolations come from the evil one. Oh, you don't want to do that. Negativity in the life of a saint, with very few exceptions, always comes from the evil one. When you feel disconsoled, it's almost all, unless it's, unless it's biorhythms going on, it's, um, it's the evil angel tempting you to be a little more tepid. Consolations for a person like you always come from the Holy Spirit, and they're meant to be fastened onto and amplified as much as possible so that we are always, always on fire with the Holy Spirit. That's the goal of the spiritual life, to acquire the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession so that it comes through every word, every look, every gesture of our lives. And if I'm not doing that, I'm wasting my time, basically. That's the, that's the ideal. But on the other side, a person who has no interest in serving God, which is the majority of the world, the evil angel sends them all kinds of consolations. They get, they get very happy when they're lusting. They get, they get on an emotional high when they've made a shady business deal. They, the more they get, the more they want. The more they go down whatever path they're going down, the easier it is for them because the evil one is greasing the skids. He wants them to keep going in that direction because they never turn a thought to God desolations for those kind of people, qualms of conscience or interruptions that happen in their pursuit of wealth or pleasure, those always come from the good angel. That's the guardian angel sending them bad things to try to turn them back in the direction of God. My point here is that battle goes on incessantly. In your sleep, in your wake, it will go on till the final moment of your life and the greatest temptation some saints say will be at the final moment of your life. But they still know, the evil angels know, and I'll quit on this note, they know they're not going to get any of you and please God me for hell. They know that. 
But St. John of the Cross says they take more delight, more satanic delight, envious rage, cackling laughter in the face of God, mockery in the face of God. They take more revenge on God and on Jesus and on his church to diminish the glory and the holiness of a wannabe saint by one degree than they do in getting countless souls to go to hell who are already on the way. It's easy pickings for those people because they look at the Mona Lisa that God has created in a saint and they'll do anything like the, our mother of Chinstahove, you know, where the, the, they came up and scratched. They will do anything if they can just nick the frame to make it look a little less glorious. They will work overtime to do that. And so in the scenario that I'm trying to paint for you, the reason we have such a hard time experiencing the kingdom in its fullness, even though it's here, is because of the continual darkness of the evil that surrounds us, trying to, including our culture, including the normal that's become. Again, you don't. Have to, I'm not talking about demonic possession here. You get what I'm saying. It's negativity is in the air. St. Paul said these evil spirits are in the air. It's in the air. It just doesn't feel right. It's, it's, a, it's an atmosphere of suspicion. Oh, come on. You don't believe that God nonsense. That Catholic church there. That old man. In, I mean, it's just it's noise. Evil is continuous noise of criticism against the good. Continuous. And, it, and our ears, my point here is our ears have become so accustomed to it when a person like me comes in they say, what is he talking about? You see what I'm saying? Until I hear the voice of angels, normal doesn't sound noisy to me. Racket sounds like silence until I hear the beauty of the angels. Okay. And my point about our Lord is he believed this. He knew this. And this is why he said of himself and of us, unless a grain seed fall to the ground and die, without resistance and with perfect joy. Now his belief was, and I do need to finish this because this is the last part of the narrative. Our Lord believed that his death, he did not, he knew that the Father would vindicate him. Jesus knew did not know how the Father... Well, he didn't know how the Father would vindicate him because he says, I will die and my Father will raise me from the dead. That was given to him to know. Our Lord also knew that not only would he personally be vindicated, but the entire world would be delivered from evil through his death on the cross. Okay? But he did not know when or how the Father would do that because the disciples started to catch on to this. They said, okay, you're going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. The Father's going to raise you from the dead, whatever that might mean. Can we sit? So then when the kingdom comes in glory, can we sit at your right and left? And he said, well, that's for my Father to determine. I don't know who he's assigned there. And of the day or hour, I don't have a clue. So you see, to really get back to a non-moralistic understanding of Jesus as not just a teacher, but as a redeemer in an eschatology, eschatological drama here, we have to realize that Jesus knew, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be raised, my father's going to somehow, through my obedience, rid the world of evil completely and restore creation and all of the people that I've died for, which is everybody, to a state of communion with himself that is more pristine than anything Adam and Eve enjoyed. But how and when he's going to do it, I don't know. But I, I, I do know <laughs> that it has pleased him to invite you to be baptized with the same baptism I'm baptized with. Can you do that? Oh, sure, Lord, no problem. Well, great. If they hated me, they will hate you. The time is coming when you will wish the hills would fall on you. And if the Father had not shortened the time, there would be no believer who could follow me into what's going to come.
So my point on my sheets to you last week and this week is this. Jesus predicted a coming tribulation for us and for his church, the final apoplexy of the evil one who has been caught. Remember last week I used the image of the hook and the fish and the worm and the divinity of Christ? Evil has not evil has been defeated by Christ's death on the cross, but it has not been banished for reasons known only to the Father. Maybe so that we who want to believe in him can be given a share in his paschal mystery. But make no mistake, the church is in for a persecution the likes of which Rome will seem timid by comparison. And that's why Jesus said such cryptic things like this. When the Son of Man comes, Will he find any faith on earth? We are in for a period of tribulation. When, where, I have no idea. Not the sun's not given to me. I know that it will happen is at the core of the gospel. And that's what I've been trying to convey last week, maybe a little more successfully this week, but the, the Holy Spirit himself knows. So that'll be something to ponder for a while, and we'll pick this up again next time. What I will do next time is explain to you how I understand the forces of evil to be in place among us, even as Christians, in terms of the way we relate to each other. And it may help you begin to recognize forms of temptation and oppression that even in my diligent faith I may not be always alert to. I'm certainly becoming aware of more of them in my own life and praying more for the grace to be able to escape and transcend them. So we'll do that next time. Glory be. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Alleluia. Thank you.